Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come into this place and remember that you are a good, good father. Remember that you, uh, by grace, have saved us and brought us into your family. Uh, Remember that it is because of Jesus that we have any standing, any presence, any opportunity to even pray a prayer like this and believe that you hear it. And so we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask you to uh, convict, encourage, uh, speak to us uh, about a subject, God, which is uh, a challenge to us, especially in our culture. And this we ask in Jesus' name. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they just figure their faces to show men they are fasting. Didn't I tell you we were going to talk about an exhilarating topic? I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And of course, these are the words of Jesus. Fasting, what a weird idea. What an incredibly weird idea. Why would anybody want to do that? Uh, Why would anybody want to be hungry and not satisfy their hunger right away? Why would you have an appetite and not immediately satisfy it? Who would ever deliberately deny themselves anything, assuming they could supply what it is they desire? Isn't the road to the good life making sure that anytime you have a craving of some kind, you can satisfy it immediately, ASAP? Isn't that the good life? That's what our culture, I think, would tell us. Uh, If you've ever been a parent now, you know the number one rule of parenting is make sure your child always gets whatever they want the moment they want it. Am I right, parents? (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, you know if you're looking for a good spouse, good friend, good employee for that matter, the number one quality that you look for in that person is find someone who demands immediate gratification of their every desire, every want, every need. That's the, that's the person you're looking for. Yeah, not really. Uh, so fasting, why? Why do it? It's weird. Uh, I am not gonna try to talk anybody into fasting this morning. Um, you're not gonna wanna do it. Uh, I know that already. It's a strange, ancient practice that uh, has no place in our enlightened world, you know, the world in which we live. Uh, This is a practice for little emaciated monks. Uh, Maybe it's good for them. It's not good for us. Nope, no way. But still, Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount, so we have to talk about it, okay? In fact, it's worse. It's not just Jesus who talks about it. If you look at people in the Bible who fasted, it's kind of everybody. Uh, Moses, King David, Elijah, Elisha, Ezra the priest, all fasted. Prophets like Zechariah, Jeremiah, Amos, all fasted. The prophet Isaiah called for a great fast that would be connected to social justice, caring for the poor and the oppressed and so. When Esther, you might remember, had to risk her life by going into the king of Persia to protest, she first got all of her attendants around her and they fasted for a period of three days. And what is more, she asked all of the Israelites to do exactly the same thing, fast and pray with her. 
uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, this huge event in the annual calendar of the people of Israel. All of Israel would fast, repenting of their sins. And then you get to the New Testament. There's an old woman named Anna. Uh, She was actually prepared to be able to recognize the Messiah, baby Jesus, because of her frequent praying and fasting. We know that John the Baptist fasted. Jesus himself began his public ministry with 40 days of fasting and prayer. When the apostle Paul met Jesus, after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, turns out he ends up fasting for a period of three days. And then later the early church worshiped with fasting and prayer when the Holy Spirit told them to commission Barnabas and Paul for ministry. And then later Paul would fast and pray in order to identify who to make officers in the churches that he was planting. It just goes on and on and on. Fasting is associated in the Bible with things like repentance from sin and great spiritual breakthrough and worship and prayer and seeking guidance. Ugh, fasting. I'll tell you how highly fasting was regarded in this weird, weird world of the Bible. You might remember the story of Jonah. Well, Jonah goes to this city, the city of Nineveh, and uh, he didn't want to go there. In fact, he tried to run away from going there, and he gets swallowed by a whale, later on regurgitated by that whale, and he's preaching in Nineveh the worst recorded sermon in the history of all preaching. Here's the sermon. This is the entire sermon right here. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, or in other words, be destroyed, be judged, be punished. That's the sermon in its entirety. There was nothing about God, nothing about grace, nothing uh, telling them what to do in case they wanted to respond, nothing. And then we read this, the Ninevites believed God after this lousy sermon. They believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, this is a pagan city. On the very first day of entering into faith, I guess they knew about Jonah's God. And when Jonah starts preaching, judgment is going to come. They decide we better believe in this God or judgment is going to come. And so in this pagan city, on their very first day of faith, everybody is what? Fasting. Yeah. And not just that. The king of Nineveh issued a proclamation. He said, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. So it wasn't just the pagan foreigners. It was their animals, their beasts of burden. They fasted too. They probably didn't want to, but they didn't really have a choice in the matter. They were fasting. About the only characters in the book of Jonah who were not fasting happened to be Jonah and the whale. Those were the only two. (laughs) Now, I know, believe me, I know, as I'm thinking about writing this message, I know you don't want to fast. Uh, And I know, of course, you don't need to fast. But just out of curiosity, let's ask the question, Why was fasting such a big, big deal in the ancient world? It's worth asking this question and trying to answer it. Because you see, in fact, fasting isn't something you just find in the Bible. It was something that people of many different ancient cultures practiced. Confucius fasted. Uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, 
fasted. It was considered a helpful practice for human flourishing. And then you come to the Bible, and in particularly with Jesus, it becomes a way to experience and depend on and trust in God and move into and live in the kingdom of God through fasting. Now, we ought to define this since we're discussing it. Uh, fasting, very simply, is just the practice of abstaining from something, food, drink, could be even something else, something like chocolate, God forbid, uh, you know, for a period of time, right? That's what a fast is. In fasting, you decide how long the period's going to be. Uh, it has to be long enough that you develop a sense of hunger, a sense of longing for whatever it is you're fasting from. So a fast would not be abstaining from food between breakfast and lunch. Not a fast. You get the idea. Uh, many, many years ago, <laughs> the first fast I ever did, uh, I did because I began to encounter this thing of fasting in the Bible over and over and over and over. And I thought, I need to do this. I need to try this. Now, I have to admit to you, I didn't want to do it. Uh, and that is simply because, confession, I am a food lover. I am a food lover. I love food. I love butter. I love cheese. I love pasta. I love hamburgers, chimichangas. I love cheesecake. I love barbecued ribs. I love freshly baked bread. People like Betty Crocker and Colonel Sanders and Mrs. Butterworth and Chef Boy RD and Pillsbury Doughboy, heroes, heroes of mine. <laughs> love food, right? So we need to be clear about something since we're talking about fasting. Fasting does not mean that it's wrong at all to love food. And that's not what fasting is about, to teach us to not like food. In fact, whose idea was food? You tell me. It was God. I mean, he could have made us so that we we're nourished by breathing air if he'd have wanted. But instead, he created food, and it's part of festivals and celebration. Food is God's idea. Jesus even tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that one of the things we're supposed to pray uh, for every day is, you know, give us today our daily what? Yeah, because we desire it, we want it, we even crave it. But here's the deal. If we're honest, we have to admit that often our desires, the things we crave, they get the best of us, right? If we're being honest, I mean, we desire this purse or those shoes or that car or these dishes or that vacation or this setting of food. And so we get it, we buy it, we consume it, right? And sometimes... Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we can't afford it. Maybe it's not good for us. The point is this. Our desires need to be disciplined, or here's what tends to happen in human beings. If we don't discipline our desires, they tend actually to dominate us. They tend to become our gods. Uh, the first time I fasted, first thing I noticed, I'm hungry. I am really hungry. The longer I fasted, the hungrier I got. All I could think about was food. I became aware how much my body insisted on being satisfied right away, right? Food had a grip on me, and I became painfully aware of that through this practice of fasting. I discovered, too, that things like food or drink or other things, substances, were things that I used to comfort myself. I'm uncomfortable. I'm lonely. I'm bored. Uh, I'm, I'm really, you know, my self-esteem is sagging. You know what will solve that, at least for a little short bit of time? A, cheese, a bacon cheeseburger with French fries will solve that problem for a short bit of time. I began to discover that, that my fears and my feelings and things like that could actually be pushed to the back of my mind, my having to wrestle with them, 
for a bit of time just from eating. And I honestly learned, began to learn all of that stuff in the context of a fast. And then there's this. In fasting, I began to discover, you know, it is possible to have an unsatisfied appetite and survive. That can happen. And eventually, too, I even learned that it is possible to have an unsatisfied appetite and not just survive, actually thrive. That, too, can happen. You can learn stuff from a fast is what I began to understand. And I learned that there were all kinds of advantages to deliberately delaying gratification, if you can imagine. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. You don't need this. I got that. But just humor me through this message and we'll get through it, okay? Uh, Many of you have heard of something. I've mentioned it before. It's the marshmallow test. It was a famous research project done some years ago and researchers would give a marshmallow to a little five-year-old and they would tell the five-year-old, just hold on to that marshmallow, don't eat it. And if you don't eat it, and the period of time was about 15 minutes and they would sit in a room by themselves. If you don't eat it, then when I come back, I'll give you two marshmallows. It was like Genesis 3 for kindergartners, thou shalt not eat of the marshmallow of good and evil, right? <laughs> Uh, it, was a, it was that battle that, that, that just rages within us, a struggle between appetite, what I want, I have to have it now, and self-control. Take a look. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> I love the little girl who didn't even wait till the gal got out of the room. <laughs> she was finishing her marshmallow. And uh, here's the deal. I don't know what your marshmallow is. We've all got them. These are things we think we've got to have and we want to consume right now, right in this moment. Uh, Gosh, it can be recognition, it can be respect, 
It can be power. It can be career advancement. Got to have it. Got to have it right now. Material comfort. Got to have that thing. That'll make me happy. That wrong relationship. Oh, I know it's wrong, but you know what makes me happy? I've got to have it. Money, moral superiority. And in those circumstances, when we face kind of what these kids were facing, that thing of temptation, temptation always whispers to us the same old message. Go ahead. You're entitled. You deserve this. You have worked so hard. Your spouse doesn't understand you. You deserve to be happy. What you want is not that bad. What you want will feel so good. It will satisfy you. And it might actually for a real short little bit of time. See, the children in that study were learning to do a tiny little 15-minute fast. That's what they were doing. And what's remarkable is in that research project, they actually followed these children on into adulthood uh, with various kinds of observations. And what's remarkable is that they found that the children who were able to say no to eating the marshmallow immediately, the children who got the second marshmallow, they actually grew up to have healthier bodies. Go figure. Uh, They did better in school. Uh, They were more successful, excuse me, in their work environments. They had more stable relationships. They had fewer problems when it came to things like substance abuse. So, you know, is it really any wonder that God gives us fasting as a practice that can help us learn to be better in charge of our bodies instead of the other way around, our bodies being in charge of us? So, you see, this is a good time for us just to talk in general uh, about the life of a disciple and what spiritual disciplines, what role spiritual disciplines play in the life of of a disciple. The Apostle Paul once uh, uh, wrote this about athletes trying to win in a great contest. He said, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Think about that, strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We do what? What, Paul? What is it that we do? Well, we go into strict spiritual training, Paul is assuming. To get what, Paul? Well, to get a crown that will last forever. This is what being a disciple actually is. This is one way to think about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. It means learning. It means practicing. It means, in fact, training. And let me just observe, there is a huge difference between just trying really hard to do something, right, versus training to do something. It's a big, big difference. Um, We love great athletic contests. The Olympics, tons of people tune in to watch the Olympics. Uh, Super Bowl, NBA Finals, World Series, Stanley Cup Finals, you name it. All these great athletes trying to win. We've got March Madness coming up. That's going to be great. These athletes trying to win. And winning, of course, is largely determined by the kind of training that they do or have done. These athletes have to watch what they eat. They have to be very regimented about exercise, about skill training. And it's just a part of who they are and what they do. They, are, they become tremendously dedicated to the process of training. I wonder, just curious, how many of us could go out right now, we'll start in the parking lot, and we'll run a marathon? How many? Anybody here? Can you do that? Somebody? Anybody? We didn't have anybody in the first service thought they could just go do that. Okay, probably not. That's not surprising. 
but my guess is that a lot of us, who knows, maybe even most of us could eventually run a marathon if we did just one thing, train, if we would train for it. Well, what does it mean to train? Well, to train means that I arrange my life around the activities that enable me to do what I cannot now do just by direct effort or just by trying hard. I might go out there and say, I'm going to run a marathon. And I'm going to achieve this because I'm going to try really, really, really hard. I I don't think I'd be able to run a marathon. You see, we tend to overestimate what we can do by trying really hard. And we tend to way underestimate what we can do by training. Training is that important. As a general rule, this is just wisdom about the human condition. Transformation in a person's life involves a whole lot more having to do with training than it does about trying hard. Uh, This is true on all fronts, athletics, music, intellectual life. It's no less true of character formation or spiritual formation. It requires training. This is why the Apostle Paul says things like this, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. That would be stories about how to become godly. He says, rather, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. This is why Jesus says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And in this case, of course, will be like Jesus, like their spiritual trainer. So you see, spiritual disciplines, they're practices, they're activities that help us train. That's what a spiritual discipline is. They give us the opportunity to grow, to live, to thrive in the goodness of God's kingdom in the truth of God's word. Now, I know, I get it. I've already lost many of you. Words like discipline, words like training, ugh, you know, awful words. They just sound unattractive. Who wants to do any of that? Who wants to embrace any of that? But understand, this is really key. Spiritual disciplines are not necessarily always unpleasant. Discipline itself, training itself, is not necessarily always unpleasant. Um, What discipline you need to practice depends on what you're training for. Am I right? If you're going to train for a marathon, what are you going to have to do a lot of? You're going to have to run. On the other hand, if you're going to train for a pie eating contest, what do you have to do? What do you have to do a lot of? Yeah, depends on what you're training for, you know, the, the, the discipline that you need to embrace in order to train and train well. Um, In the Bible, one of the great commandments, I'm just going to illustrate further this thing that not all discipline, not all training is bad. One of the great commandments in Scripture is rejoice. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Uh, Joy is listed as the second fruit of the Spirit by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. Joy is a big deal. It's an important thing for God's people. And people that hear that think, you know, man, you're right, I joy. I'm not that joyful. I need to try harder to be more joyful. No. No, not really, because actually you have to train to be more joyful. Trying harder to be joyful is like trying harder to run a marathon today, right now. It's probably not going to help you. You're not going to achieve it. No matter how hard you try, you won't be able to run a marathon today unless you have been training to run a marathon. Same thing with joy, I would submit. You have to train for joy. You may not know it, but the Bible has a lot to say about things in like feasts, celebrations, 
music, expressions of gratitude and thanksgiving, certain holidays in the Old Testament and the New. These things were there in part to help people practice, have a regular rhythm of practicing joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. It was all rolled up into and a part of the festivals that God asked his people to participate in. God built this into the yearly routines of his people. Not just to give them something to do, but to give them practice that would actually help them be joyful. So if you struggle with joylessness, if you're a somber, sourpuss, lacking joy and gratitude, I would suggest to you, you need to start training for joy. You could do this. This would be one approach. You could take one day a week and just call it joy day, right? Day of celebration. Wear the clothes you love to wear. Eat the food you love to eat. Make it a marshmallow day, right? Listen to the music you love to listen to. Be with people who fill you with joy. Are you aware that some people don't fill you with joy? Are you aware of that? You're going to have to say to those people, I can't be with you today. This is a joy day. I can meet you day after tomorrow, but not today. We cannot hang out because you're a Debbie Downer kind of a thing. See, You see... The purpose of spiritual disciplines, very important we keep this in mind. The purpose 